The New York Times has now fully embraced its role as the dog in the cartoon, surrounded by fire, saying, this is fine. The New York Times, like all establishment organs, exists for two reasons, and two reasons only. One, to prop up our sclerotic ruling class, and two, to demonize those of us who oppose it. Hence, David Leonhardt's recent New York Times newsletter this week, in which he declared, quote, strange as it may sound, the American government can function without a healthy president. Just two and a half, three years ago, the Times was insisting that the president was the most important person on earth, that Trump was mentally deranged, and that every second he remained in office sent us hurtling that much further toward the end of the world. Now that Biden's in office, and it's obvious that while the light is on, no one's home, now the Times insists that the president doesn't really matter. Sure, President Biden might be checked out, but see guys, the government can function without a healthy president. Can it? Inflation has hit record highs. Crime is soaring. People can't afford groceries. Drugs and criminals are pouring across the border, killing so many people that the life expectancy is declining. The economy is in free fall and we're on the brink of World War III. Where do the New York Times journos get the idea that the government can function without a healthy president? They don't really have that idea. They don't really think that. They don't really care about the truth at all. They just play their role and say what the establishment wants them to say to prop up a system we all know is failing until one day they can't pretend anymore. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back to the show. Huge story that everyone is celebrating about this student who, through hard work, has been accepted to 170 colleges and won $9 million in scholarships. And everybody is celebrating this wonderful feat, except for me. We'll get to that in just a moment. First, though, the president is not healthy might be the understatement of the year. The president, oh, he's slipped a little bit. Oh, yeah, maybe he's lost a step or two. Joe Biden can't remember the last country that he visited. The last country I've traveled, I'm thinking once was the last one I was in. I, I've, I've been to 89, I met with 89 heads of state so far. So uh, I'm trying to think, what was the last, where was the last place I was? It's hard to keep track. Um, I was, I, I mean, yeah, you're right, Ireland. That's where it was. How'd you know that? I love a little kid. It's Ireland, dummy! <laughs> don't, hey, don't call me dummy. I'm the president of the United States. You got to respect your elders. So how do you forget Ireland? Uh, oh, yeah, you're right. It was Ireland. Okay, but Joe Biden, he travels a lot. I, I understand it. I hit the roads. Sometimes I forget, was I last in Wisconsin or Michigan? Now, Wisconsin and Michigan are a little more similar than, say, Ireland and Japan or something like that. But okay, all right, he, he, he just sort of forgot. Someone reminded him. Now, later on in his remarks, he seemed to forget something that's, that tells us a little bit more about who the man is. He forgot how many grandchildren he has. I have six grandchildren, and I'm crazy about them. And I speak to them every single day. Not a joke. Matter of fact, I just got finished going through the calls, and uh, only one of them answered the phone. Uh, 
Well, at least I got to leave a message. And my oldest granddaughter is named after one of my daughters who I lost in an accident a long time ago. And her name is Naomi. So and he I, says, I got six grandchildren, and I call them every single day. Seriously, that's no joke, Jack, except he doesn't. He has seven grandchildren, and he refuses to acknowledge his grandchild by Hunter, uh, this four-year-old girl who I don't think he forgot. I think he just refuses to acknowledge her. And I, I keep bringing this up because it's a really nasty thing to do. Imagine that you're this little girl, and your grandpa is the president of the United States, and your, your father is a degenerate, but at least your grandpa is supposed to be this upstanding guy is the president of the United States, and he refuses to acknowledge your existence. That would probably make you feel pretty low about yourself, even if you don't think that when you're four. And by, by the age of four, you're, you're starting to be aware of things. But certainly by the age of 14, certainly by the age of 40, you realize, oh yeah, my grandfather, the president, was so ashamed of me that he wouldn't acknowledge my existence. That's a nasty, nasty thing to do. And that's not just forgetting. That's Joe Biden typically not caring about the truth and ignoring the truth and pursuing merely what is convenient for him. And so it tells you something about his presidency. And I'm not just picking on Joe Biden. It tells you something about the state of our ruling class. If a man will not acknowledge the truth about even his own family, people that he's supposed to love, the the smallest political community, the, the most fundamental political building block, if he won't acknowledge the truth about that, how's he going to acknowledge the truth about everything else? How can you expect him to tell the truth about the rest of politics? And if the president of the United States refuses to acknowledge the truth, if he's just going to live in a fantasy world of his own where he makes up his, his academic record and he ma- makes up his corn pop stories and his father's stories and his grandchildren's stories and it makes up all sorts of events for 50 years now in politics. How are we going to live in a system that flourishes? If our political leaders refuse to tether themselves to reality, how are we supposed to get along according to reality? When you, when you live according to lies, when you live according to fantasy, you're not going to have a flourishing society. That's something we got to talk about. When you want to talk to your friends, you got to check out Pure Talk. Right now, go to puretalk.com, use promo code Knowles. We all know about the big wireless cell companies out there. They lock you into these horrendous contracts. If you try to get out of them early, they tack on outrageous charges. That is why I'm so pleased to use Pure Talk Wireless, where there are no hidden fees, no contracts, no hassle. Pure Talk's U.S. customer service team made it incredibly easy to sign up. You can keep your old phone number if you want. Pure Talk has a range of affordable cell phone plans to choose from. You can find the perfect option for your needs, such as unlimited talk, text, and plenty of data for just $30 a month. Their 5G service is fast, consistent, doesn't drop your calls. You get the same coverage. When I say the same, I don't mean similar. I mean the same coverage that you are used to at half the rate you're currently paying. Pure Talk saves the average family over $900 per year. Not only will you save more money, you will also get the satisfaction of knowing you're supporting a great American company. The CEO and chairman of Pure Talk is a U.S. military vet. When you become a Pure Talk customer, you're given the option to support America's warrior partnership, which works to prevent veteran suicide. Go to puretalk.com, enter promo code Knowles, save 50% off your first month, 50%. That is puretalk.com, promo code Knowles. Pure Talk is simply smarter wireless. Speaking of political orders falling apart, this is the most disturbing story I've heard all week. Out of the Netherlands, 
officials in the Netherlands have approved assisted suicide for people ages 1 to 12. Babies to preteens can now kill themselves legally and doctors can help them do it. They will permit the doctors to euthanize children deemed to have conditions which will lead to hopeless and unbearable suffering. Now, the way that the Dutch officials are describing it, they say, oh, this is for a very extreme case. It's people who are days away from certain death and they're in such intense pain that we're just going to put them out of their misery. Now, this is not how euthanasia, how assisted suicide actually works in practice. You remember shortly after the Netherlands approved assisted suicide some years ago, people warned this isn't going to be only used in extreme cases. This is going to be used to put down people who the the state deems unworthy of life, even people who don't want to die. And then there was a very famous case of a a woman who did have dementia. And uh, so I guess she had forgotten that she had authorized this assisted suicide. And when the doc came to poison her, she, she said no. And the doc said, too bad, I'm killing you anyway. And she said, no, no, no. And she fought back. She tried to push him away. And then her family held her down while the doctor killed this woman. That's what it looks like. And what it looks like is incentivizing people who are a little bit depressed, who are a little bit anxious, who fear that they're a burden to their families, incentivizes people to kill themselves. And now they're doing it for little kids. And everyone looks at this and they say, this is horrible. This is shocking. How did this happen? This was always going to happen. It's the same people who look at transing the kids and they say, oh my gosh, this is shocking. How did this happen? This was always going to happen. The minute you accept the logic of assisted suicide, of euthanasia, euthanasia, which is called, it's, it's a term that means good death, but it's not a good death. It's the worst death of all. It's the death uh, that it totally expresses despair. The moment that we accepted that logic, that the perfect expression of despair is a good death, then it was always going to end up with the kids. The moment that we accepted the idea that you had some sort of right to kill yourself, that was always going to go down to the kids. Just as when we accepted the idea that a man can secretly be a woman, well, then that was always going to affect the kids. Because if it's true, if the transgender anthropology is true, then of course we have to extend the transing procedures to little kids. It would be cruel not to. If they're really, it's really a girl trapped in a boy's body, then of course we've got to put them on cross-sex hormones. Certainly before puberty, we've got to make some interventions because otherwise it'll be harder for him to transition and express his true self. But it isn't true. And in the case of suicide, you don't have a right to kill yourself. There is no way to make a coherent argument for the right, so-called, to kill yourself. So it's just a pure imposition of will. You say, well, I want to do it. And by the way, we've got all these people that I deem useless and valueless, so let's just get rid of them. You know, they're just a drain on society. And then we get horrified when we see the logical consequences of that play out. I have to give a little bit of credit to Will Thomas, you know, the guy who goes by Leah. He's the swimmer who beat all the girls on the Penn swim team. Will Thomas was just on some sort of podcast, and he explained how unreasonable it is for conservatives to buy into parts of transgenderism, but then oppose men in women's sports. 
they're like, oh, we respect Leah as a woman, as a trans woman, whatever. We respect her identity. We just don't think it's fair. You can't really have that that sort of half support where you're like, oh, I respect her as a woman here, but not here. They're using the guise uh, of feminism to sort of push transphobic uh, beliefs. And I think a lot of people in that camp sort of carry an implicit bias against trans people, but don't want to, I guess, fully manifest or, or speak that out. And so they try to just play it off as this sort of half support. They think about how twisted feminism, quote unquote, feminism has become. Their arguments, you know, in order to exclude anybody in the trans category, you have to reduce women to reproductive capacity, which is, in my opinion, extremely anti-feminist. I don't want to put those women down either. And I know you don't want, don't want to either because I see pain. I, I see pain and, I, and the pain is coming from somewhere. It's not you though, it's the patriarchy. And how can we get people to see that? No, I think it's you. I think it's coming from you. And it's coming from people who are invading their bathrooms and their locker rooms and taking their trophies and their scholarships. That's where it's coming from. And Will is right. This host of the show is completely incoherent. But Will Thomas is totally right. When he says, it just doesn't make sense. You're going to, you're going to respect me as a woman in certain parts of society, but not in others. You're going to go halfway. You're going to tell me that you know that I'm a woman, but you're going to behave as though you know that I'm not a woman. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Will Thomas, totally right. Not only is he a great swimmer, at least when he's racing women, but he's more logical than just about anybody in the transgender movement. Either transgenderism has to be established in our law and in our culture, as activists are trying to do right now. They've been trying to do this since 2020, so it's relatively recent. But in the Bostock decision from the Supreme Court, in the Harris Funeral Homes decision from the Supreme Court, the court has said, we are going to redefine legal protections on the basis of sex, and we're going to now say that they're protections on the basis of gender identity, which ironically undermines protections on the basis of sex. If you have legal protections on the basis of sex that says girls get their own swim teams, and then you redefine that to say, actually, people who identify as girls get their own swim teams, then what you've said is girls do not have their own swim teams because Will Thomas is going to compete against you and take your trophies. Okay, that's what our law has increasingly been saying. We either need to follow that to its full conclusion or for the good of society and especially for the good of the poor people who've fallen prey to this confusion, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely, the entire ideology from top to bottom. Those are the two options. Will's, Will Thomas and I are in agreement on this subject. If you disagree, I don't know, you're disagreeing with the most prominent spokesman of the transgender movement and uh, knuckle-dragging conservatives such as I. Speaking of being divorced from the truth, Dylan Mulvaney, it wouldn't be a day that ends in Y if Dylan Mulvaney were not thrusting himself into the headlines. Dylan Mulvaney has accelerated his activism, and he now says that we ought to arrest people who refer to him as a man. The articles written about me using he pronouns and calling me a man over and over again. And I, I feel like that should be illegal. I, I don't know. That's, that's just bad journalism. I feel that should be illegal, don't you? We should arrest people who don't think that I'm a beautiful, stunning woman. I'm just the picture of grace and femininity. I, Dylan Mulvaney, we should arrest those people. We went from 
Just leave us alone. How does this affect you? What's your problem? Why are you so obsessed with us to call me a beautiful lady or you're going to prison? In like six months, that was pretty fast, wasn't it? Dylan Mulvaney has only been pretending to be a woman for slightly over one year. He's on his 368th day or something like that of pretending to be a woman. And we went from, tee hee hee, isn't this so silly? I'm a lady, tee hee hee. How does this affect you to, you're going to the gulag if, if you don't call me she. Actually, sir, it's ma'am. It's, it's that video of the giant guy in the bodega. That guy is more peaceable and amiable than Dylan Mulvaney. Dylan Mulvaney doesn't yell and scream, but the threat is far more serious. This is what they want. Why? Why are they so insistent? Because public lies require ever more force to prop them up. If you're telling the truth and you're orienting your society according to the truth, you don't need nearly as much force because the truths on which you base your society are clear to people. People can perceive them. They can deduce them using their reason. They can intuit them using their moral conscience. If, however, you're grounding your society on absurdities, then those absurdities are not clear to people. In fact, it's it's quite clear that they're false. And so to establish them in society, you need force to tell people, don't believe your eyes, don't use your faculties of reason, deny your moral conscience, shut up or we're throwing you in the gulag. That's why. That's why uh, at times in our nation's and civilization's history, when society has been more normal and in line with reality, the government has had a lighter touch. The government can afford a lighter touch. But as society becomes more absurd, the government has to become more tyrannical. The government has to become totalitarian. Because any little crack in the artifice that has been built up can threaten the whole system. So if you're living according to communism, say, which is based on false ideas about human nature and reality, then you can't allow, you can't allow a representative of the people to speak up in Congress or the parliament, certainly not. But you can't even allow a novelist to question it. You can't even allow families to question it around the dinner table. You certainly can't allow TV shows to question these sorts of things because any little crack will be persuasive to people because people can know something about the truth. They can recognize the truth. Sometimes using their reason, using their moral conscience. Don't don't think this is Dylan Mulvaney jumping the shark. He's not. This is the inevitable consequence of establishing a lie so absurd as transgenderism in our law and culture. Speaking of irrationality, North Carolina man was critically injured. He almost died when his neighbor allegedly started shooting him and his poor little girl and some other children. Why did the neighbor start shooting the children and then the father? Why did he try to murder the little kids? Because their ball rolled into his yard. These little children were playing with a ball and the ball rolled into his yard. So he got a gun and tried to murder the children. Why did he do it? Well, he yelled, I don't even like white people. His name is Robert Lewis Singletary. He's 24 years old. 
turned himself into authorities after he was on the lam for a couple of days and realized he was going to get caught. So he goes, he turns himself in. He fired at this poor little girl and her parents, White and Ashley Hildebrand, uh, after, after the ball rolled onto the property. So you white, I don't even like white people. I'm going to shoot your AWS. Uh, and then, according to the father, he fires three shots. He hasn't hit anybody yet. So I turn around and look. My daughter's right in front of me. I look and see he's pointing straight at my daughter. So this father just jumps and he gets shot and is critically injured. Uh, the daughter caught shrapnel in her cheek, but luckily, luckily they, they seem to have lived. You almost certainly haven't heard about this story anywhere, maybe on some conservative channel, but this sort of thing is suppressed. Obviously, it goes without saying, if the, if the races were reversed, then this would be a national news story. The president would give a speech about it. There would be a national conversation going on. There might be riots, but in this case, it's not. We just sort of ignore it. We, we ignore the fact that he shot these people because they're white. This is the real American constitution, lowercase c constitution. We have an uppercase C constitution that's written on parchment. And that uppercase C constitution written on parchment is related to other founding documents, the Federalist Papers, the Declaration of Independence. And so we have this view of how American society works based on schoolhouse rock. You know, I'm a bill up on Capitol Hill, do, 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 do. But that's not the real constitution. According to the real constitution, there are favored groups and disfavored groups. And if you're a member of a favored group, you'll be treated differently by the law and by the culture than if you're a member of a disfavored group. And that's what we're seeing playing out now. And some of those are sometimes in flux. Women, for instance, are more favored than men, but they are less favored than men who think that they're women. And so, so if women, women can claim discrimination by men and the law will look favorably upon them, but Women can't claim discrimination by so-called trans women, the men who think that they're women. The law will look more favorably on the transgenderist people. Obviously, according to the law and to the culture, white people are pretty much the only group that you can discriminate against and insult. And non-white people can do no wrong. They're the greatest people on earth. Every problem is because of whiteness. Every solution will be by turning away from whiteness, the original sin of our civilization. These are ideas that are not only floating around the culture, but are articulated explicitly by the people who wield power in the culture. And so a, a presidential candidate, as we look ahead to 2024, a presidential candidate who is successful is going to have to speak to the real lowercase c constitution, not just on this issue of you know, black people, good, white people, bad, that our popular culture puts out, Oh yes, this guy shot a little, tried to shoot a little girl, and I guess ultimately did because of the shrapnel in her cheek, because she's white. Oh yeah, okay, never mind, move along, move along. But not just that. It's the whole issue of how does our society really work? Put aside the transgender issues and the race issues and all those other issues. How does our society really work? Who wields the power? How do we bring those powerful forces back into line? How do we rein in the media? The New York Times, the state paper from... from basically just pushing state propaganda. How do we fix that? How do we, how do we tweak the education system? All the rest of it. A real successful presidential candidate. I don't want to hear platitudes about the 4th of July and the Declaration of Independence. I want people to address the actual constitution 
according to which, the unwritten constitution, according to which society operates today. Because we are in national decline. I hope we're not headed for national death. We might be. You are headed for death at some point. That's why you got to check out Epic Will. Right now, go to epicwill.com slash Knowles. There are certain things in life that you do to protect your family. You get life insurance. You save for a rainy day fund. You write a will. Epic Will is not for people who are already wealthy with a massive estate. Those people need an attorney. Epic Will is for people who are, oh, hey, that's cool. Oh, that's great. You know, well, that's all right. We'll Epic get to it later. Will, you doing It's that? Epic Will. How are hey, you, Epic my dear? Will. What's hey, up? What's up? Who are you? Hey, Michael. So tomorrow's my birthday. Yes. I was just about to wish you a happy birthday. Were you? I was. Actually, I was, I was. I'm actually accepting cash. Are, are you? Yeah, so I'm oh, coming good. here to see if you um, have your wallet on you. Well, uh, so take $5 of cash. I've got, um, I actually, oddly enough, I do have yeah. money. Um, do you? Can you break a, can you break a hundred? I don't or, think there's a reason to break no. it. <laughs> you yeah. just take it yeah. right away. Just take cash for my birthday. That sounds fabulous. Mm-hmm. So, wow, you're turning 26. Uh, 26 again. Again. <laughs> yeah. And so I just wanted to see. Um, wow. Guys, for Epic Will, there are certain things in life mm. that you do to protect your family. You mm. get life insurance, you save for a rainy day fund, and you write a will. Mm-hmm. Epic Will isn't for people who are already wealthy with a massive estate. Mm-hmm. Those people need an attorney. Mm-hmm. Epic Will is for people who are building their estate. It's for people who are just getting started. Epic Will provides a simple and secure platform to create a legally binding will in just minutes. Their user-friendly interface allows you to easily customize your will and ensure that your assets are distributed according to your wishes. Mm-hmm. Unlike those traditional law firms that charge high fees, for will drafting, Epic Will services are affordable and they're transparent with no hidden costs or surprises. All you need to do is fill out their step-by-step form and they'll help you create your last will and testament, living will, health care, and financial power of attorney in as little as five minutes and for just $119. Having a will can ensure that your wishes are carried out after you pass away and may also provide you peace of mind for both you and your loved ones. So go to epicwill.com slash Knowles. K-N-O-W-L-E-S. Mm-hmm, to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. That's epicwill.com slash Knowles. Be sure to leave me some money for well, I was I was wondering, as as the godfather yeah. to a certain uh, Candace child, mm-hmm. how much do I get in the will? I have to go. Hmm. I do have to go. Um, I will break that 100 later. Great. Okay. But wonderful. I'll be accepting cash for my birthday, mm. or if you can leave it in your will because it's my birthday to to tomorrow, it. not really today. And I'm going to get cash mm-hmm. from Michael Knowles later. Happy birthday. Thank you. If you watched Netflix's hit show, Making a Murderer, you are going to love Daily Wire Plus's new exclusive 10 part series with Candace convicting a murderer coming this summer. Making a Murderer was the gripping tale of Stephen Avery a man wrongly convicted of sexual assault in 1985, and then just two years after his release, accused of a gruesome murder. The series suggested that Avery was innocent and set up by the Mantatowoc, did I pronounce that correctly, County Sheriff's Department. It made his conviction feel like a significant miscarriage of American justice as millions of people rallied behind Avery, passionately claiming that the truth will come out. But what if the truth is even more shocking than anyone expected? What if there's more to the story than what we were shown? As you know, Candace is a fierce advocate for the truth, and she is diving headfirst into the notorious Stephen Avery case. In her new series, Convicting a Murderer, she's disclosing the shocking parts of Avery's story that were omitted in the Netflix series. Is there an innocent man behind bars, or did the real miscarriage of justice happen when Hollywood decided to get involved in the first case? Find out this summer in our new explosive 10-part series, Convicting a Murderer exclusively on Daily Wire Plus. But don't wait until then to sign up. Right now, you can get 35% off your membership with code TRUTH. This offer will not be available for long, so become a member today and be here when the truth finally comes out. Dailywire.com slash 
subscribe. Speaking of racial politics, lost in the story about Tucker Carlson being fired by Fox was a happier story, Don Lemon being fired by CNN. Uh, Don Lemon gets fired. Apparently his agent told him CNN didn't even have the courtesy to sit down with him and give him the, the information face to face. He says, I was informed this morning by my agent that I've been terminated by CNN. I'm stunned. After 17 years at CNN, I would have thought that someone in management would have had the decency to tell me directly. I don't really care that much about the Don Lemon story. What's interesting about it is to think of Don Lemon as the anti-Tucker. They happened at the same time. Both prominent cable news heads who lost their, their jobs. But they're the opposite in many ways. Tucker started out as a magazine journalist, very good writer, and something of an establishment type of conservative. He, he talks about this frequently. He, he pushed propaganda that today he never would have pushed. He was just sucked in by it. And then over time, Tucker became more and more disenchanted with the establishment. And so his show on Fox was quite different from the other shows on Fox. No knock on the other guys. I still have a number of friends over at Fox News. But Tucker was different. Tucker was not following the script that a lot of people in politics follow. Don Lemon, on the other hand, started out cutting against the grain at CNN. Don Lemon started out questioning the leftist narrative. He would sometimes agree with Bill O'Reilly. Don Lemon would sometimes criticize the BLM movement. And then the more and more he was at CNN, Don Lemon fell more and more into the liberal establishment line. And then they both wind up in the same place. They both get canned. What would you rather be? I think a lot of people just toe the line in order to keep their job out of fear that there will be some kind of reprisal. But look, in the, in the long run, we're all dead, okay? So what, w- what would you rather do? Would you rather pursue the truth and maybe you get canned for it down the line? Maybe if the Vanity Fair story is right, Tucker got fired because he told people to go pray to God? Or would you like to just go along to get along and say all manner of things that you probably know aren't true? And then you wind up in the same place. It's the same story in form. It just, at the end, totally radically different. Okay, there's a story that everybody is celebrating. It's so sweet, so wonderful, how proud we all are. It's of a student who has won $9 million in scholarships after now having been accepted to 170 colleges. Here's how the news covered this. A little earlier, about about 45 colleges ago, as he was already winning a lot of money in scholarships and being accepted to a lot of schools. Dennis Barnes has gone into 125 colleges and universities. He's also earned millions in scholarships. As for how he did it, well, the teen is very humble and credits hard work and those around him. Dale College, what school is this? Hilbert College with um, been devoted to trying to get my school work done and get good grades always, of course, like the average child. At just 16, Dennis Barnes is anything but the average child. He's just a few weeks away from graduating from international high school, and he's got a big decision to make. What college will he attend? I have Loyola Marymount University. 
Well, he's got at least 125 to choose from. It's not normal. I know it's not, of course. It, it's not normal. This is not. Everyone is so happy about this story. I don't like this story. I like that the kid did well in school and got good grades and he's going to go to a college that he wants to go to. This is not normal and this is not humble and this is not right. Whoever encouraged this kid to do this did not do him any favors. Why would you apply to 170 schools? You can only go to one school. You can only accept one scholarship or a number of scholarships from the same school. So what's the point of this? The point of this is just to brag and to get a headline and to get a news story. But what's the consequence of this? The consequence of this is that lots of other students, 169 other students, are not going to get into schools because this guy wants to be able to brag about how many schools he got into. What is he bragging about? Let's, I don't know what colleges he got into. Let's say he's a math genius and he got into MIT. He got into MIT. Wow. Okay. Is there a news story for a kid got into MIT? No, because a lot of kids get into MIT every year. It's a very hard school to get into, but a lot of kids do it. But there's, there aren't these news stories because most of these kids don't also get into 170 other schools, even though they could. If you get into MIT for math, you can get into any other school in the country for math almost without exception. I'm sure you could get $20 million in scholarships offered because at the very top schools, the scholarships are not merit-based, they're need-based. So if you don't come from a lot of money, you'll get those. And then at the lower schools, you'll be offered a ton of merit scholarships. If you're debating between Palookaville State and MIT for math, you know that the smaller school is going to offer you some money based on merit because you got into the bigger school. This is all about the self. It, and it, it's, I don't, I'm not really not knocking the kid for it because in the news segment, you can tell his parents are encouraging him to do this. His teachers and his guidance counselors are encouraging him to do this. Just wrong. In the old days, you used to apply to a few schools that you wanted to go to. And then when you got into your school that you wanted to go to, you withdrew your other applications. And you say, okay, now, the, now these other people, how, this wonderful feeling that I just felt of being accepted to the school I want to go to, now that I know that I'm going to go to that school, I'm going to allow other people to have that nice feeling of being accepted to the school that they want to go to. But that's not how we look at it now. We don't, we don't even look at college as a way to become educated. We just look at it as a credential for a resume. Today, getting into college is, is harder and more important than graduating college. It's still difficult to get into a lot of colleges in the country. But once you're in, it's almost impossible to flunk out. It's, it's pretty easy to graduate. So what this says is it's just a, it's a way of establishing some kind of credential that you're on the right track. It doesn't really matter what you learn. The purpose of an education is to get outside of yourself and your own base desires and your own self-obsession and to see the truth, and to see a bigger world, and to cultivate yourself, to become immersed in culture and the grand story of your whole civilization, and to realize that you're just playing one little role here in a much bigger story, in a much bigger picture. And the way, it's not just this kid, 
It's not just this news network. It's not just, it's even, it's the way that the schools now cultivate students. They put all the focus on the self. What do you want to study? What do you think? Maybe you can make your own major. Maybe you, 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 you. I remember, this is true even 10 years ago, now, I guess 15 years ago, when I was a freshman in college, and we sit down, and for the first week of orientation, all we're told is, you're the future. You're the future leaders of America. You're the greatest people in the whole wide world. That's, that's backwards. And if that's the way you're educated, you're not going to be educated very well. Looking around our country, that appears to be what's going on. Finally, finally, we have arrived at my favorite time of the week when I get to hear from you in the mailbag. My favorite comment yesterday is from Aaron Votan, who says, always know it's going to be a good show when the YouTube warning about the New World Order shows up. Very, very true. There's no New World Order here. What are you talking about? Here's how, we're going to prove that there's no New World Order here by uh, censoring you every time you even suggest that there is one. This mailbag is sponsored by Pure Talk. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, enter code Knowles, K-N-W-L-E-S, to get 50% off your first month. Take it away. Hey, Michael. So I've got a serious question for you. Why do you and other Daily Wire hosts play clips from The View? Does anybody even watch that show? And if they do, why? But if they don't, why do you play their clips? Also, it always makes me laugh when you say people got so open-minded that their brain fell out. So <laughs> thanks for that giggle. Hope you are having a great day. Wonderful question. And I had the same question myself. I looked around and I said, wait a second, why are we conservatives covering the view? Because I had done it and I would see it pop up in news articles. But then I'd say, hold on, does it matter? Who ca- are we the only people who watch the view? I can't imagine anybody would choose to listen to Joy Behar. And then I looked. The View is the highest rated show in daytime TV. There are a lot of people who watch The View. It's wrong. It's terrible. It makes me weep for my country. But it actually is a a pretty big show. And I think sometimes, if you're listening to this show, you are pretty plugged into politics. You're paying pretty close attention to matters of politics and culture and philosophy, more so than the average person down the street. And so it's easy for us to get trapped in our own bubble. And and then we're surprised when politics turns out in ways that we think are unreasonable. That's why I think to get a finger on the pulse of a certain very large segment of America, we have to subject ourselves to Whoopi Goldberg. Next question. Hello, Nostradamus. This is Sheila. I wanted to get your thoughts on something. I currently hold the job in which all other jobs in our society exist to support. I'm a domestic engineer and a homeschooling mom, as well as a business owner. I wanted to have uh, your thoughts on these school vouchers. So a lot of us in the homeschooling community are really against these school vouchers. Um, We think they might be a great thing for public school systems, but as far as for even private schools or especially homeschooling, we really think this is a 
uh, Trojan horse. We really think this is a way that the government is going to sink their claws into um, our curriculum, into what we're teaching, into our homes, into the lives of our children. If we're seeing some of this transgender stuff happening in the public schools, in the government-run schools, then why wouldn't they just do the same in our homes and regulating homes? As soon as we take their money, we are in their debt. We are have to adhere to their policies, their rules, their regulations. So just want to get your thoughts on this in the words of General Akbar from Star Wars. It's a trap. Thanks. It's a risk. There's no question it's a risk. It's a risk that I would be willing to take now because the risk is not that the government will be able to force you to change your homeschool curricula, but that it will just incentivize you to. Because if you're a homeschool parent, you're going to homeschool your kids no matter what, okay? And the government's not going to have that much to say about it. But the fear is you might start to like that money. And then you might be willing to compromise on your curricula to keep the money coming in. And so that's a risk. But then the flip side is, with the school vouchers for not only certain charter schools and parochial schools, but but for homeschooling, you are really damaging the power grip of the teachers' union. And you are weakening the monopoly of this this teacher union, Democrat, bureaucrat alliance that totally owns public education in America, which means they own education in America, period. And so it's a little bit of a balance. And the question is, are you willing to take that risk of maybe creating a tough incentive for homeschool parents in order to deal a real strong punch to the control of the teachers union? I would be willing to take that risk, yes. I think it's worked out pretty well for the charter schools and the parochial schools. I think that the American people are very much on our side with school vouchers and homeschooling right now. I think COVID really helped that out. So I think the political conditions today are such that I would be willing to take that risk. If it were a different time in history, maybe not. But but it's it's politics is like blackjack in that if you always play by the same rules all the time and you never change your strategy ultimately you're going to lose. But if you know when to split, if you know when to double down, if you know when to employ certain tactics, then you've got a very good chance of winning. Okay, next question. Hey, Michael, longtime listener, really big fan. I have a question concerning my boyfriend. We've been dating now for about two and a half years. And early on in our relationship, we really prioritized health and fitness, just getting in the gym, having a healthy lifestyle. Recently, uh, I'd say about the last six months, he's really been slacking and he has put on weight and is unhealthy. I just don't know what I should do. I don't know if I should talk to him about getting back in the gym and his weight and his health, or if I should just let him be, um, let him do his own thing. So really any advice that you Mm. could give me would be really appreciated. Thank you. It's a delicate issue, but I think you're well within your rights to be concerned. You might raise the question from a sincere care for your boyfriend's emotional, mental, spiritual health. It might be more than just he really likes that fried chicken that his grandma makes, And he might be a little bit depressed. He might be overworked. He might be stressed. So you might say, hey, 
Johnny, what's going on? Are you, are you doing all right? Can't help but look. I love you. You could be 300 pounds. I would still love you. But I've noticed, you know, you seem, you seem to be a little bit different. You seem, what, what's going on? How can I help? That would be one way to do it. Another way to, to help would be to get married and then you're cooking for him and then you can just decide what he eats. <laughs> and that's, that's been really great because uh, sweet little Elisa cooks 99.7% of the food in our home. And the other 0.3% is when I just drive by fast food and, you know, sneak a Arby's double beef and cheddar or something like that. But uh, because sweet little Elisa cooks magnificent food in a rather healthy way, even when I glut myself, I usually don't get too fat. Uh, so that, that would be a long-term way of exerting your influence here is, you know, you get married and then you're making all the food. But, but I would just, I, I wouldn't frame the issue from the standpoint of, hey, you used to be really hot and I used to find you hot. Now I think you're fat and ugly. So fix this or I'm going to leave you. I would just frame it from the position of, hey, I care about you. I love you. I, I love you in that I will your good for your own sake. And uh, physical changes can express uh, deeper issues. And you seem like you're having a, a rough go of it. So what is it? Talk to me. Talk to me, baby. Okay, next question. Hey, Michael, it's Sophia, your number two fangirl. After Julia, your number one fangirl. I need some marital advice. I'm getting married to the best man I've ever known in less than a month, and I've never been happier in my life. I can't wait to be his wife, take care of the home, and have oodles and oodles of babies, God willing. My question concerns our differences in time management skills. I'm a really punctual person. I like being on time. I'm often early and I'm very good at managing my time. But my fiance is not, and he would be the first to admit it. He gets distracted. He's got a bit of ADD and it, it's hard for him to manage his time. How would you manage this? How would you suggest that I manage this issue? Thanks. I love your show. Thank you so much. Lovely question. I'm even going to put aside for a moment that you, you referred to this man as the most wonderful, finest man you've ever known right after you said you're my number two fangirl. I guess that's why you're not my number one, you know, because I don't rank number one for you. Oh, that's okay. That's good. I'm glad that you love your fiance so much, it, but you've got this problem. And it's a problem that resonates for me because I am also habitually late. I'm not egregiously late but I am habitually fashionable or fashionably or slightly more than fashionably late. That's the way it is. And Elisa is extremely punctual. And she's made me more punctual than I used to be. But we still have this issue. And so being fashionably late is a fine thing. That can sometimes be actually appropriate. If you're invited to a dinner party, you say, show up at five o'clock and then you get there, you know, 4.59 and a half, knock, knock, knock. That would be inappropriate. You really do want to show up about 4.10 ish, you know, maybe 4.15 even, I'll push it a little bit. Uh, but let's pull this out a little bit from just the, this future marital spat over time management and get to all marital disagreements. Topic seems to be in the news these days. Let's say that you and your spouse have a conflict and the conflict is over. Should we show up on time to a dinner or half an hour late. The way most people think of marital conflicts 
Should you put away your clothing or should you leave it strewn about the house? This is another fault of mine. I leave my clothing strewn everywhere. Should you, uh, I don't know, do the dishes or not do the dishes? Should you pay your bills? Should you not pay your bills? Whatever the spat is over. The way people today view marital conflicts and conflicts broadly is as a battle between two opposing wills. I want to do this, and you want to do this, and I'm going to force my will on you, or you're going to force your will on me, and I, you don't respect me enough. And right, that's the way that we, we all in our culture are inclined to think about these things. What would be healthier and more helpful probably is to think about these as a question of what is good or bad, what is right or wrong, what is true or false. So instead of it just becoming a battle of wills, it becomes a question for the intellect. Is it right to be invited over to someone's house and show up half an hour late? No, that's rude. That's impolite. That's unjust. That's not good to do. It's imprudent because if you keep doing that, then people are going to stop inviting you over because you keep screwing up their dinner parties. And so you can have, you can discuss that. And it's no longer about me getting my way or you getting your way. It's about what is right. Okay, here's what's right. And sometimes maybe I'm more inclined to do the right thing and you have a harder time with it. Sometimes maybe you're more inclined to do the right thing and I have a harder time with it. But if we focus on that outside of us and then we're both pursuing that thing together as one flesh, two individuals that come together and and a man and a woman complementary make one flesh, it's going to be much more conducive to flourishing because it's no longer going to be, I hate that you're making me do this. It's going to be rather... I hate that I don't have the habit of virtue to, to be inclined to do the thing that is right all the time. This is, this is why when people say you've got to put God at the center of your marriage, it's not just some soapy kind of happy saccharine thing to say. It's a really important, it's a really important part of your whole life, but, but especially in a marriage because you've got to have your focus be on the truth. That's how you're going to get along and grow together and flourish. Otherwise, if your focus is just on your yourself and your own subjective desires and your own disordered will and your own imposition of, of what, what you desire, then you're going to have conflict. It's just the way it goes. The rest of the show continues now. You do not want to miss it. Become a member and use code Knowles, K-N-W-L-E-S, at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. This is Fake Headline Friday. I need your help to pick the fake headline among the real ones. We'll see you over there.